I am Karel, and you know, the past two days I've thought about how fun sometimes it is to be me. Uh, because it was pointed out by my friend Thea that if there's someone in the world I want to talk to, usually I can. Uh, and that's remarkable. And as any of you know, for years I have been raving about Emily Sandé and her music. Uh, I haven't been raving about her personally, we're just meeting. Uh, but her music has been something that has touched me uh, and changed my world, and I know so many others. And her story is one that I think will resonate uh, with all of you as well. Uh, so she is gracious enough, while she's here in Los Angeles, uh, to sit down and talk with me, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Emily Sandé. Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh my god, I can't, you know, I really, it, it's fun to be a fanboy sometimes. Uh, because, as I told your sister Lucy, it started with our version of events. Uh, and then it segued into, uh, you know, Long Live the Angels, where you took us to church. Yes. And then Real Life and Real Hair, uh, which, is, which is all good. Uh, and, and, and the musical journey has been extraordinary. And I want to go from the aspect of American audiences, perhaps, uh, because that's uh, who my audience is. So you, you know, they make it, the media always does things. They make it seem like you were just happily going along being a doctor and then just decided to be a pop star. <laughs> But that's really not true. You had uh, tomorrow starts now, I believe. Oh, was, yes, it, was it to tomorrow, uh, tomorrow starts again? Tomorrow starts. Whatever happened to tomorrow starts again? Oh my God! Yeah, um, that was my first song when I was about six or seven. I don't know. I can still remember it, strangely enough. Well, why haven't you used it for something? I don't know. That's a good thing. I need to bring it back. You need to bring tomorrow because tomorrow starts again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in your. It, you know, it's odd. You had the vibe then that you have now, really, about forward and about about life progressing and taking the good and the bad and, and taking it with you along the way. Yeah, uh, I mean, my dad always introduced me to very like strong uh, lyricists, you know, Joni Mitchell and Nina Simone. And so I always had this example of very like serious lyrics. I think I took that on board from quite young. Well, you know, we talk about family. I jump around in my interviews a lot, but you know, my dad never got to hear me on radio. Okay. That, that bothers me. You got to give an award to your parents recently, yes. uh, and, and you've been made an honorary chair, or, or um, excuse me for not knowing the exact thing, but at the school uh, where I believe your, your father teaches or, or, or went to the academy, yes. and now you're like involved in that school. How much fun is it that when you get to be Emily Sande, you get to be Emily Sande with your parents too? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing to be able to experience it all with your family is just, you know, is my reason for doing it, really. But yeah, I got uh, the honor of being the chancellor of Sunderland University, where my parents went to. And, you know, I was born in Sunderland. And being able to hand over the degrees was just such a beautiful moment. And you grew up in Scotland, correct? Yeah. yeah. And Zambian father. Zambian father and English mother. And English mother. Yes. That made for an interesting cuisine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was our version of events, your first album, which is spectacular, the cover threw me. I didn't know if you were old or young when I first saw it. That's the truth. When right. I first saw the image, I thought, wait, is she an older artist or is she? And then when I saw you at Nokia Center, I go, she's young and fabulous <laughs> and in tennis shoes and bouncing around and having a good time. How much of our version of events, when it comes to songs that deal with like mountain or river, um, how much of that was your parents' relationship? Because you were so young, you hadn't really been through those types of relationships. You have now, right, yeah. uh, but you hadn't then. I think, well, mountains was definitely inspired by their relationship. But yeah, everything, you know, I think when you're around people's energies, you take in what they're going through and it gets processed as a song one way or another. 
So some of it was my friends' relationships and also things I, I was going through. But mountains especially is a lot more of a mature connection, I think. Uh, my kind of love. I grew up with uh, handicapped parents. I grew up in the AIDS generation. Uh, and that is me. It's like, if you want all of that, go somewhere else. But if you want someone that's going to be there when no one else will be, then call me. Mm. And so that song really resonated. And I heard that you, one of your inspirations was when you were studying and you did study you, to be a neuroscientist uh, and almost was one. And, and then the album happened. Uh, so our version of events, it, it, Second album. The first was the Adele Sande album. Your first name is Adele. Yes. Uh, and you were going to be you were going to be Adele. Yes. And then Adele became Adele. Right. Yes. <laughs> Put a wrench in your. <laughs> it's like Carell. Yes. My name is Charles Raymond Boulay, but I was a writer. And when I released a record, they said, "Well, they're not going to take you seriously." So my late husband went to the dictionary and looked up Charles, and it's Carell in Czech. And he goes, "You're Carell." And I go, "Oh, it's Czech for Chuck." So okay. <laughs> so suddenly I became someone else because yeah. I didn't want to be judged by the what the other name was going right, to imply. Yeah. But that first album, that was someone that you had met. You and you believed in him. He believed in you. Uh, it's clown about sort of leaving that behind and moving into the major label structure? Hmm. Because, um, boy, that's smacked of major. I've, I've seen those people. No, sign here. It'll be great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was definitely part of it. It was my first experience with you know, having to showcase with people and learning the whole infrastructure. But I guess on a deeper level, it's just when you're looking out there and for some reason you are always, you know, the loser or it's been the whole system has been designed for that to be your place and I think that's what the song's really about and that you know I'll have time for please and all these like pleasantries you want me to upkeep once I realize why I can get through the back of the line. As an openly gay entertainer in America before it was fashionable <laughs> or accepted uh, I related to that as well because there are many times I've actually felt like oh you're just hiring me because I'm what you think a gay person is right you know so I have to like what if I don't want to be Bette Midler that day? You know, what if I'm more somber that day? Yeah. But that's not what they expect. They expect flamboyance right. and I'll be your clown. You know, right. here it is. Okay, yeah. That launched a, we, I can't imagine it. Those wor words are powerful. Words mm -hmm. are very powerful. And when we say the word unimaginable, we just sort of toss it about. But the truth is you went from studies and all of this to a major celebrity. That, that mm -hmm. album took off. Yeah. And, and, you know, platinum and, and the top of the charts and the whole thing. Did, when did you get the whiplash from that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe like a, a year and a half later or like two years later when you still, you have to kind of work for the album because it has been so successful, which is wonderful. But as an artist and my main, I love creating music more than anything. So not having the opportunity to go back, recap, be in the studio and you know have new expressions that's when I began to feel because you had people yeah. all of a sudden you there had were people to pay people <laughs> yeah, yeah. And all of that it was like people Anita yeah. Baker once told me I write every check I get writer's cramp <laughs> well you've got people child. Yeah. so then you, you do our version of events it's huge um, on a personal note what are the expectations like going into a second album after that kind of first Oh, and did you, did you notice, of course you noticed them. How did you keep them at bay so you could create Long Live the Angels, which is breathing underwater, you know, I want to be in the choir. You know, you took us to church. <laughs> Thank you. What happened between our version of events and, 
and uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking, but uh, Long Live the Angels, uh, to make you want to go to church? What, what took you to church? I guess, was, you know, life gets real and... Talk when, about real life. Yeah. And when you, you know, when you have a tremendous success and everyone's happy and everyone's your best friend and then to slowly see that change when it's not, it's just kind of like, hmm, this is how it is. This is, this is the truth. I'm glad to see it, even though it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a sad truth, but it's a freedom to know the truth in that sense. So my point being, um, you just get to see everything for its realness. And I think that's what made me want to delve deeper lyrically and with my art in that let's actually get to the real truth so I can stand on something solid. And yet you always remain youthful in many of the tracks. You know, it's funny, one minute you sound timeless and like Aretha and the song's gonna last forever. And then, mm-hmm. then the next minute, it's a really contemporary, very garden, you know, that, right, yeah. where it's a really, um, now Naughty Boy, we all have our, our muses. Yeah. Uh, and you and Naughty Boy seem to be each other's muses. You work well together. Yeah. Uh, you met early on in your career. Yeah. And you've been able to keep that association. Yeah, I mean, sadly, we both got... Um, Famous. Famous. <laughs> and not sadly, but, you know, yeah. schedules oh, then. Yeah, yeah. No, but recently, he's, we turned, uh, he's in L.A. at the moment. I had no idea he was going to be here. So, to, you know, yesterday we reconnected. And, yeah, I think we do inspire each other, and we know how to handle each other. Real life... Um, feels just that. And it, it brings a maturity that I think you had to live through. Mm. You had a personal relationship, and I don't really get into those or care about them. We all have our dramas. But, but how hard was it to try to be Emily Sande pop star, Emily Sande wife, Emily Sande daughter? Yeah. How was juggling those jobs? It was quite hard. Yeah, it was hard. And I think it's a big lesson to learn that you can't compartmentalize your life. It, at one point, it's all going to come yeah. and just be like a tornado. So yeah, that's something I've learned. Like you can't separate things and people, and you just can't do that. And then also that unless I'm giving a hundred percent, I'm never going to be happy. And right. if you divide yourself so many times, you're you can only physically give twenty percent of yourself because you cut. Because you don't life. have any left. How do you recharge? I go cook, like the, we, your friend Luca was making the cheesecake. Yeah. Uh, I go, and, and, and I would love to taste it, but I'm a vegan. Uh, shout out to Luca and his cheesecake, child. It looked good, honey. Uh, but how do you recharge? Do you cook? Do you, do you what do you do? Um, I, well, I, I do just genuinely love, like, sitting and just playing the piano with no intention of recording it or it being anything other than just pure meditation, singing. Singing when you're not doing it as a job right. is a, a lovely experience, so... I'm trying to do that more, just sing more openly. Do you find, you know, hairdressers have the worst hair. Um, do, do you find that when you now get paid to sing, you sing less? Yes. That's Isn't it. that weird? That's my New Year's resolution. Why do I not just sing in the house anymore? And, you know, and I, that's the whole point of singing. My friend Thea, who I told you about, we met at a magazine very close to here. We went out with the, one, the publisher one night. And he said, you two should go sing karaoke. And we look and go, we get paid to sing. And he goes, and he, and he looked at me and he said, a singer sings. Right. That's and it. that was like such a powerful message to hear at that point. Yes. It's like, if you have a voice and you, you mm. use it, a singer mm. sings, no matter where you are, if you have a chance to sing, go sing. With real life, you decided to become a little more real with your fans in terms of your hair. That was, yep. you know, yeah. and uh, there's a great movie, uh, Academy Award nominated short that I'm going to send you the link for mm. called Hair Love. Mm. I thought of you when I watched it. Oh. Uh, 
but also with with the with lyrically, it 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 kind of got very like, who's gonna? Are you gonna bring me the medicine? Are mm -hmm. you know who's there? Mm -hmm. um, why I don't want to say why a reality slap, but was this way was this album real life your way of regrounding yourself? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, the whole process of making the album was at home around family. Um, <clears throat> Billie Eilish just. They said they made the album in their garage, oh, yeah. in their bedroom. I mean, yeah. Energy and your surroundings are so important. So yeah, it was a grounding. It was a let's rebuild from scratch. And if this is the beginning of the journey, or it, to me, I see it either as the close of a chapter, the close of a trilogy, <laughs> or you know, like the other Adele. Uh, she yeah. did the twenty-one oh, twenty geez. or eighteen twenty-one twenty-five or nineteen twenty-one twenty-five, and she said that's it. There's right. no more, and that that part's it's quite over. Quite a nice feeling to close the book. So. We're left us feel a kind of ending to that trilogy. Now, you've also done a bunch of fabulous singles uh, from Extraordinary Being. I'm sorry that movie didn't do better because the song was incredible. I, I loved the movie. Yeah, I know. So I, I like the movie, too. I, I was like, what's wrong with the movie? Why is everyone not liking the movie? Uh, but I love the movie and I love the song. And, mm. and the song was extra, you know, extraordinary. And you've done Naughty Boy and Rudimental. I don't like that. Yeah. I love that song. Uh, you mentioned Michael Jackson in that song, too. You yeah. mentioned him in a couple songs. Yes. Uh, so, what is it that draws you to dance music? I saw you sing with David Guetta, and oh, right, yeah. uh, you know, you, you really love dance music. What I is do. it about dance music that you love? Well, it's just so bombastic, and it's, you know, it's a kind of giving genre, because you want the crowd to come together. But I love, I can properly sing, you know, you can really go for it, like, gospel-wise, and, and it's just nice. You know, I love being able to do music on stage that people can dance to, because a lot of the time, clown, and you're sitting, but to get the energy up, it just feels great. Well, I, again, I could talk to you forever, and I thank no, you thank for you taking so the much. time today. Uh, we look forward to the next album. The current album is called Real Life. Uh, there's a lots of good material on it, great material on it, so please, if you in America and you haven't gotten it yet, once you get it, then get our version of events, uh, and long live the angels, thank and you. believe me, you will not be unhappy with any of it. Go get all the other singles, <laughs> you won't be unhappy. Uh, thank you. Please, I know, I know you want to, but you've got to come and perform for us sometimes, yeah, because we're I dying for you over know. here. I was just at a Grammy function, and I was talking to the ladies, I go, you know Emily, right? The Emily Sunday. they're like, of course we're not. I go, <laughs> I go, do you know that he dates, she, no, she hasn't announced any, uh, I'm just like, oh. I can't wait to, I'm honestly so excited. I, and we're excited to have you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Thank you. I am Carell. This is Emily Sande, and we thank her for her time. Okay, Ember's in the kitchen, so all is well. Hey, I'm Carell, the Planted Host. Welcome to my kitchen. Uh, you know, sometimes when I'm around the house for lunch, it gets late. Look, it's 12.56. See that? It's late for lunch, and I'm hungry, and I want Mediterranean, but I'm too cheap to go buy it, and it's just always better when you make it at home. Well, I'm going to take the shortcut on some things, but I'm going to show you how you can whip up a quick Mediterranean lunch of falafel, hummus, and salad, uh, probably in under 30 minutes, uh, hopefully, and, uh, and deliciousness with just a little prep, okay? First of all, look at this. They sell falafel mix in the store, Noor. I love the brand Noor. They make many things. So with that falafel mix, all you have to do is put a third a cup of water, a couple tablespoons, a third a cup plus two tablespoons of water, and you mix it together, and you're gonna wanna let it set for at least 10 minutes. So just mix it together. And you don't have to do the mix. It's really just chickpeas and spices. That's what that falafel is, chickpeas and spices. Uh, but if you do the mix, it takes out some of the time you have to spend. Then you're gonna wanna get a pan, okay? We're not to the hummus yet. You're gonna wanna get a pan uh, and some vegetable oil, 
and you're gonna wanna start that heating because you want hot oil to cook your hummus in. Uh, and that pan is not gonna work for me. Did you see what happened? That pan just went like that. Not doing hot oil that way. Uh, so the all clad goes away, the calphalon steps in. We get our vegetable oil from our pantry, high pantry, high vegetable oil. So will I just use all the vegetable oil? I guess I will. How much vegetable oil should I use, Corel? Oh, about that much. About an inch in the pan, okay? So whatever pan you use, put about an inch of oil in it. Okay, so while that sits here, hello. You know what we've done over here? In our pressure cooker, which everybody needs to have, whether it's an Instapot or a pressure cooker, I use the Cuisinart. Uh, an hour ago, these were hard chickpeas. An hour ago, these were in the bag from the bulk store at Winco chickpeas. And now they are marvelously cooked chickpeas because I put four cups of water and one cup of chickpeas in the pressure cooker with two tablespoons of oil. What you get left is this is aquafaba. You save this and use this to make meringues and all kinds of stuff. This is pure protein, kind of like egg whites. It's aquafaba. So save that uh, and take your two and a half cups of garbanzo beans because guess what? One cup of dry garbanzo beans after you go in here turns into two magical cups, two and a half magical cups. So you're gonna take two and a half magical cups of garbanzo beans, and what are you gonna do with it? You're gonna take um, a tablespoon of fresh parsley, some garlic, a quarter, a quarter cup of tahini, one teaspoon salt, two tablespoons of lemon, water, a quarter cup of olive oil. That, of course, will be on the website. I scratch everything in my kitchen. Tahini, you say. Corel, what is tahini? Where do I get tahini? Why would I have tahini? Tahini is just ground up sesame seeds. It's all it is. I buy it. You can buy it. Uh, you don't have to buy it. You can make it. You can just get some sesame seeds and toast them and bam, you got your tahini. And I'm going to take the rest of those ingredients and we're going to whiz them around in there and make hummus. And then we're going to fry up the falafel balls, which I'll show you as I do that. Okay? On your mark, get set, cook. Okay, so at 12.56, I had nothing. I just had some garbanzo beans that I had made in the pressure cooker, which you should have on hand anyway. Uh, it is now 1.25, all right? So now I have that. What that is is a salad with three kinds of lettuce, carrots, cucumbers, strawberries. Uh, we have pecans. We have craisins. We have, I'm sure I'm forgetting some deliciousness that's in there. We have the homemade falafel and the homemade hummus, and it's all right there, and it's all ready for me, and that at a restaurant would be 15 to 20 bucks. It really would. And I'm gonna have it with some homemade iced tea. So bon appetit, as my friend Julia Child would say, I am Corel, be who you wanna be, so don't hurt anybody, especially yourself. The dishwasher is running, the sink is clean, food processor put away, stove is done. Everything else is done. All the pots and pans put away. And it's what? It is 2.01. So about an hour. About an hour to make hummus from scratch, falafel, salad. I have leftovers of all of it. It could be a meal for someone else. Sorry. No excuse not to get into your kitchen. No excuse to not cook for yourself. No excuse to not eat better. I am Corral the Planted Host. Yes, it just got dark because when I get out my kitchen, honey, I get out my kitchen, okay?
look at you, Miss Ember. What a lucky little dog you are to be sleeping so soundly here without paying a stitch of rent. <laughs> As one of these disco records over here will tell you, ain't nothing going on except the rent. Boy, is that true in the city that I am sitting. It is 2017, and I am sitting in Long Beach, California. And let me tell you how we just got a dubious distinction. Guess what? Long Beach, California, as part of Los Angeles, California, and Los Angeles County, is now the place most in the nation. Nowhere else in the United States will you pay more of your income for rent or mortgage. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, come to beautiful Southern California, where 53% or more of your income to go pay for a dump. Uh, and I don't mean to be rude about that, but let's be real. There's some really great parts of L.A., and there's some really not. And the really nots are now going for what the really nice used to. And you know this is the same way in your town all over America. You know you are feeling my pain. Because unless you are retired and your house is paid off, if you're paying the rent, you know that most of your check is going to the rent. And this is unsustainable. It is the problem that no candidate's talking about. Uh, certainly Trump wouldn't. I don't even think he pays rent. He didn't pay taxes. He collects rent uh, I, from us often. Like at Mar-a-Lago, he rents out rooms to our Secret Service. Oh, and golf cart, $60,000 a weekend. Boy, you know when that Irma hit, I have to say, I was devastated. I was born in Miami Beach. And of course, I have family in Houston, so Harvey really terrified me. My cousin David and my Aunt Irene and Colleen. But I know it's wrong of me, it really is, but I just wanted Mar-a-Lago to be destroyed, just destroyed, so it could be a symbol from above. But instead, it wasn't. Uh, in any event, all across America, the Bay Area, out of control, rents up there, oh my God, people are literally, I am not making this up, people are paying $1,100 to live in a closet. Now, honey, I haven't done that for years. I'm not going to go do it. And I'm certainly not going to pay someone to do it, okay? But up in the Bay Area, $1,100. Los Angeles, California, Koreatown. I know a girl right now renting a closet from four men uh, who are roommates in a two-bedroom. So it's two guys in each bedroom and the woman in a closet somewhere. This, is, this sounds like a sitcom. I mean, get John Stamos over here. You know, four men and a woman in a closet. Uh, and what is she paying? $500 a month. 500 a month to live in a closet. Now, in my community, I've known someone for over 20 years who is a, a club owner. Uh, he is a realtor. Uh, he is a landlord. Uh, and he's just a person that's been trying to get by like everybody else uh, in the crazy economy. Uh, and I thought he would be uniquely qualified to talk about things like cost of living, uh, rent affordability, what can be done about it, uh, and the economics of really getting by in today's world. So we're here at one of his clubs. Uh, it's the Paradise on Broadway in Long Beach, California. If you're ever in town, come by. Uh, also, uh, you own uh, the Eagle 562 now. You've started a Levi Leather Bar up in Northern and the Falcon, and then you own several properties, and of course, you're a real estate broker. Uh, so let me ask you, Mike, uh, let's look at the, at the plus sides. Is it good to be a real estate broker right now? Home prices in every market in the country, all top 30 markets, home prices are soaring. Is this a good time to be a realtor? Uh, there's always pluses and negatives. Um, real estate is booming, prices are up. There's very little inventory, and it is more and more challenging to find a buyer a property, but we're doing it. Now, let me ask you, how do you deal with the math of reality? Because, for instance, where we are now in Long Beach, we know the median income is right about $70,000. So if we do the math on that, 
I'm at about 5,500 a month, meaning they should be at about 1,800 or less for a mortgage. Are you able to put people in houses with that math, or are you having to do more creative math, or are they going to are they using two incomes to, you know, to make sure that they're meeting? How are we? How is that math working out these days? Um, two incomes is definitely probably more probable in buying a home right now, especially if you want a decent area. I have one of my bartenders is in escrow right now, three percent down, their very first home, and we lucked out and found them a great condo two blocks away from here. The average person in America, according to all the figures right now in 2017, can spend about $250,000 in a home. Now, I don't know where y'all are watching this. You might say, wow, Carell, in my city, that'd be a great house. In the top 20 cities in the United States, of which I'm sitting in the fourth largest market right now, that's not so much. What could I get for $250,000 this side of Santa Barbara? From Santa Barbara down, what could I get for you? In Long Beach, you might get a small one-bedroom condo and a fairly decent... We're talking like 500, 700 square feet. Yeah, but a few things that are very positive for first-time homebuyers. Interest rates are in the low 4%. Uh, something like 30% of the population can get a loan right now and purchase. And sometimes your very first home is not your dream home. But right, you might right. get your foot in the door, and then in two years, you can call me and go, this has appreciated, we've been making our payments, we have more equity, <laughs> we're ready to now move, you know, four blocks from the ocean instead of being 12 blocks from the ocean. You have been a realtor in this market for a long time. Back in 2008, did you see the crash coming? Did you say these loans are crazy, these people are, are making loans they shouldn't be? What's going on uh, here? I did not see it coming, a lot of people did, but yeah, things are just going up and up and up and I didn't forecast. Is that happening again now? Uh, Are th because a lot of people tell me we were precarious then, they were making weird loans, people were buying houses they couldn't afford, and then bam, it crashed. And nowadays, it seems like the same thing's happening again. Um, I do not believe it is. And in, back in 2006, you know, Joe the gardener was buying a million dollar home for 5% yeah. down right. and stated, stated income. income. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. Now the average buyer is putting 30% down. A lot of people are paying cash. And yeah, they're looking at their FICO. Um, now that, and let's talk rentals. That's really, because LA, LA Weekly did a cover story that said, uh, you now have to be rich to live in Los Angeles. 100,000 a year or more for a two bedroom apartment because it's 2,500 a month. Um, we had an interesting conversation there are uh, mandates now in many cities, and they're trying them here as well, that say if you're going to build something, let's say downtown Long Beach or downtown San Francisco or downtown New York, which New York is having a real problem with this, that you have to make some of those housing units affordable. So if you're building a 20-story building and you're going to sell them for a million, you still got to make some that the median income can afford. Now, as I said on my show today, they are doing that, but they're making those poor people feel like servants. They have to go in and out special entrances and, you know, use different elevators and this stuff. What is their responsibility? Because you know that people are getting priced out of areas, that they're simply areas. I could not sell my home and move to another house here in Long Beach. I couldn't. Well, let me rephrase. If I gave someone $200,000 down, they'd finance me but uh, on a $400,000 loan. But you know what I'm saying. It'd be, it'd be difficult. So is there a responsibility nowadays to make affordable housing available in every single area of every single market? Well, one thing I do want to point out, I think our mayor, Robert Garcia, Janine Pierce, they're all, all the city council, Rex Richardson, they're all trying to do something about helping low-income housing. Mm -hmm. And they are building new low-income housing. How do we know the butt's coming? <laughs> but, get to the butt! Okay, and I've never heard of a building where uh, low-income people had to use a different elevator. New York. 
Uh, okay, well, in New York, that's probable. But, um, and I do have my opinion about low-income housing, and it may not be the most popular view, but I feel, to me, it's the most realistic. Which so is. I'm going to share it with you. Yeah. And I did have a conversation with one of the previous city council about they feel that when a developer builds a building on Ocean Boulevard and it's $140 million, that 10% of that building should be for low income. Right. Okay? I disagree with that. I, and I'm all in favor, and please don't get me wrong, about housing for low income, but I'm like within reason. In other words, you don't hate the poor. With, no, exactly. <laughs> within reason. And maybe we can talk about rent control well, in and, the world. And this is, you know, I had this conversation today on air. I believe housing is a right. Okay, that's my, Germany, it's already, they already accepted it's a right. You have a right to housing. Um, however, it begs the question, do you have a right to housing everywhere? In other words, can you tell the people of Beverly Hills, you got to let some low-income people in here because that's just what's fair. When I grew up, I wanted to make a ton of money so I could live on Ocean Boulevard or First Street or so I could live on Beverly Hills because when I grew up, I knew that it was going to take a ton of money to live there. I didn't expect to let make them open up the area to me if I couldn't afford it. Is that kind of what you're saying now? If you want a condo at the beach, you can have one, but you're going to have to be making the cash to support it. Yeah, and instead of telling a developer that 10% of your Ocean Avenue condos on the beach need to be for low-income housing, how about saying you need to put some money in a fund and we're going to revitalize an area over here that needs to be revitalized? But doesn't that then speak that the poor can exist just not they can exist over there. It is very controversial because now you're kind of saying, well, lower income people need to live in this neighborhood. Right. But again, if, should they live in a million dollar condo and be paying $800 a month? I don't think that's the... It's funny because back in the day, I think that you and I, because of our ages, I think that we look at this in a different paradigm. We look at it in the old economy. And in the new economy, there's only 20% of America making more than $100,000, which really would mean that, that, that all of our primest areas can only be inhabited by 20% of America. When you have that kind of math, something that's not right. Um, but I also, how do I say this? I half-ass agree with you. I mean, I really, you know, I don't think we should say to people, if you work hard and you do have benefits of your labors, that you have to share them. And when I say share them, what I mean is, yes, you should have to provide for the poor, like you said, but pay money, have a fund, create new housing, maybe do a rent control scheme somewhere or something. Um, but you shouldn't necessarily have to have them right there next to you because you worked very hard to not be next to them. And that's, that's cold and that's hard, but it's true. That's a motivating factor for humans to want to better themselves. And so if the playing field is completely equal and everywhere is equal to everybody, then why do you want to succeed? Why do you want to, you know, so I get what you're saying. My problem is in this day and age, it's hard in practice because so few people have the resources. When you and I were a kid, there was a middle class. Our parents were probably part of it. And you could buy a house in a nice neighborhood. You could have not a junky car, but a nice car. Maybe not a Cadillac, but you could have a nice car. You could have a nice home in a decent... Now, you really either you have or you don't. And that's, I think, what people's problem is. With, when, you, when you speak like that, they're saying, well, wait a minute, but there is no middle. So the people that could have afforded that before, they're not, they don't even exist anymore. It's either the rich or the poor. And rent control. My friends in Santa Monica would be not living without it. They would, they would be you know, living somewhere else if it weren't rent controlled. But you're also a landlord. How does all this affect you as a landlord? Well, to back up just slightly, and again, there are 3% down conventional right. loans. 
and a uh, medium income family or two, two of them can actually buy something that is a decent, something nice to live in. So, right. and your payments might be under $2,000 a month. So it, it is doable. In this time where we have people doubling up, tripling up, roommate situations, people, as a landlord, you're a nice person. I know you, you're a nice person. You have some tenants even right here on Broadway and they're struggling and some of them aren't making it and they can't make it. And so you then have to step in and say, I'm sorry, but you have to go because just like me in my roommate situation, when he couldn't pay his rent, I thought, I love you, but I can't carry you for two months because I have bills. And you as a landlord, you've got, you know, mortgage property, mortgage and property taxes and all these, you know, expenses. How hard is it for you nowadays to, to tell people, I'm sorry, but you gotta go? I mean, knowing that they're, you know, that they're hurting, and yet you gotta just sort of take that upper hand. How hard is that nowadays? Um, that would be an extremely hard situation. I do try to work with my tenants, and right. sometimes they're just out of work for a month or two, and I can let them get slightly behind right. and work with them, and then they're back on their feet. Do you find yourself doing that more today than maybe 10 years ago? Uh, no. So it's been the same for Yeah, you. and Long Beach actually has some really good figures as far as employment. So the city... I really thought it would have been more now. I thought it being as hard as it is now, you would see more people in, in arrears and more people needing help. But you're saying it's people are always needing help and people are always getting behind. Yeah, and with me personally, no, it just hasn't happened a lot. It just hasn't happened that way. Are you optimistic about what's happening in the market, in the economy? Yeah, and in housing in general, do you think Long Beach is going to make it through without some sort of major, or any city, San Francisco, New York, how do you see us getting out of the stratification that's happening because the rents are so high and people's wages aren't matching them? And how do you see that ultimately coming together? Um, I think it's going to be a struggle, but then there's also always some negative with positive. Right. And there are some areas, especially North Long Beach or Vice Mayor Rex Richardson is doing some great things up there. And I think there are some neighborhoods that people haven't looked at in the past that they're going to start looking at. In every city, don't you agree? In every city, I think people are going to start finding, where do you think we gays are going to do? We did here and we did the, we did Wrigley. Do you think we're going to we're going to infest some other place and take it over? Possibly North Long Beach. North Long Beach, yeah. I just opened the Eagle 562 up yeah, there. Yeah, up on the way up there, yeah. And there's all kinds of plans for restaurants and coffee houses. I could see that. I could see us, I could totally see us central, because, you know, we move in, we bring up the property values, and then we get kicked out, and then we got to go someplace else. Yeah. I, well, did, I want to talk briefly about rent control, yes. and again, being a realtor, and something that just recently happened to me this week, oh. is I do have a client who's in his 70s, his partner older than he is. Um, he owns a building in San Pedro. It's five units. It is rent control. Um, the building needs $60,000 worth of roof work, yeah. foundation, et cetera, et cetera. His rents are so low, he can't really raise them. Can't do it, yeah. And he doesn't have the money to fix it. So you can pull in, especially being a realtor, I can drive through neighborhoods and go. If it's rent control, does the city give you guys money too? How does that work? No. They tell you how much you can charge. Right. But they don't make up the difference. No, they do not. No, Section 8 is totally different. Right, that's different. Section yeah, 8 and I would be more in favorable, and I've have had Section 8 tenants. You have taken, because a lot of people won't even take them? Yes, I have taken them, and they were very good tenants. And again, with this particular individual, he can't, he can't get a loan on it because his rents are too low. It's going to be hard to sell because the rents are so low. And he's stuck. He's told to take You know, people. Bill Handel once told me, you'll go from a Democrat to a Republican with your first paycheck. That's what he once told me. And I have to tell you, being a landowner now, owning my home, um, I have been a tenant, I've been a roommate, and I've been a, a landowner and a landlord. 
And now that I see it on both sides, can I just say it's rough on both sides? I relate when someone can't pay or when someone gets behind or when someone needs rent control because they're poor. I get that. And then as a landowner at the same time, I think, yes, but you're making that really, really hard on me. So we have to find a solution as a society to make it easier on landlords and make it easier on tenants combined. A lot of you have moved back home, uh, or if you have a home to go to. A lot of millennials are back with their parents. A lot of families have doubled up. This is America, and it's not pretty. A report came out in 2017 that said on in no state, no state, as in no, as in ain't no state, in no state in this of uh, United States can anybody afford the median rent on a two-bedroom apartment. Not in one state. Because of the median incomes being adjusted for the state, you can't afford it. So what do we do? What do you do? What do I do? I don't know. You know, uh, this episode, one of the themes, uh, you know, of the episode is being a landlord, paying rent. You know, I'm a landlord. Believe me, it's hard. It's hard. You know, what, what do you do when a roommate doesn't pay? What do you do? Just throw them into the street? What if they've lost a job and then their unemployment runs out? What? You're not, you know, going to be compassionate to them? You're going to come from a place of business and say, sorry. You know, plus, look at all the problems. That, do you know, I, I never even thought about this. I had a friend looking for a place to live in Long Beach, which is like impossible to find a place to live in. And uh, he said, do you know how much I spent looking for a place to live? And I said, you mean in gas? He said, no, in fees. I said, what fees? He said, credit checks, all that. He said, I applied at 20 places at 50 bucks a spot. That's $1,000 to get turned down at 20 places. And that's legal. My town is starting to adopt a registry type thing where landlords you know, pay one fee and they then you pay one fee, whatever. But it's not going on yet. Why? Because everyone likes the way that this is. Landlords are, look, if I wanted to rent this very house that I'm living in, I could not afford to live here because it would go for $4,500 a month. My mortgage with taxes and insurance is 14. Add in five for the second, you're at 19. Seven for utilities, you're at about, what, 26? So 2,600 a month for this four bedroom house, it would rent for double that. And honey, I only owe 390, and they say it's worth between six and seven. I mean, this, this is crazy. Now, y'all know that you will lie about the last time you had sex with someone before you tell them how much you make for a living. And you, people, they blow that figure up like men do their penis size. How much do you make? Oh, I make around uh, 80K. Isn't that 35 is nowhere near 80, but to you it is. Uh, because that's America now. We don't want to admit that we're underpaid or not working. Uh, we don't want to admit that if we're under 40 years old, that like 60% of you or some huge number are living at home. Uh, because you just can't make it out in the real world right now. In Los Angeles, the average two-bedroom goes for $2,500 a month. You have to make $100,000 to afford that, either together or apart. So either you're both making 50, uh, which is the median income, actually, 55. In Los Angeles County, $55,000 or less is considered low income. Imagine that. For those of you that are 50 or above, I'll take the above, uh, but not too high. Um, I'm never too high. Uh, imagine when you were 15 years old, 
saying to yourself, you're going to make $60,000 a year. You would have thought you were a Rockefeller. You would have been like, oh, I'll have a Cadillac. I'm Elmer J. Fudd, millionaire. I own a mansion and a yacht. No, you're just getting by. So I thought on the show we would have real conversations. And as I've mentioned in other segments, season four is going back to what season one was supposed to be, which is my life in segments. And right now, one of the biggest issues in my life is paying bills, just like you, okay? This house we're sitting in, if it weren't for loan modifications, we wouldn't be sitting in this house, okay? And don't get me started about the 40-year second modification that they tried to make me accept, but we could talk about that on another show. So I'm just like you. I had to modify, rectify, do this, do that, got three months late on the payments, you know, the whole thing. I'm America. I have a roommate. My roommate's going through what a lot of you are going through right now. So I asked him to come and, and talk about it today, because why not? We talk about it over there at the table. We might as well talk about it over here. And then he has a friend going through the same thing. I went to the gym first time in a long time, sat on the jacuzzi. The older gentleman was telling the younger gentleman about how his son, the Marine, is living back at home, cannot find a job, and may get a job as a bouncer after being a Marine. It is rough in America in 2017. And if you're watching this in 2020 or 2025, I hope it's better for you because it's rough right now. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that. Um, it's funny, I just talked to your landlord. Isn't your landlord Michael Barber? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just talked to Michael Barber uh, about this very thing about, you know, with, like with Steve, because we spill all the dirt here. Steve is unemployed. And for some strange reason in America, they think unemployment insurance should run out because I don't know why that is. In Germany, it doesn't. In England, it doesn't. Here, it does. So after six months, if you ain't got a job and you're a male over the age of 18 in California, you're, because there, as you both know, there's no social programs for you. $118 a month in food stamps you could get and $138 cash, and that's it. That's, that's what you could get to be destitute here in Southern California if you're over 18 and under 65 and not a woman with no dependent children. That sucks. There's no social safety net for average men. Single men. Single men. I don't think they tell you that either. Like, I don't think it's offered like, hey, well, your insurance ran out. Right. Here's your other option. Right. There are no other options. Yeah. They don't offer you. In fact, I have a friend who's chronically homeless, and the wait to get in a shelter is two months, but the amount of time they'll give you in an emergency shelter is three days. So they'll put you up, well, or a week. So they'll put you up for three days or a week, but they can't get you a place for two months. And in between that week and the two months, they just, they don't tell you what, there's no resource for you. Right. So Steve, let's start with you. You were working like so many others at an SEO company and you're doing web design. You're also a DJ and we can talk about that later. But, you know, your main gig at the time was web design and everything. Company goes through changes. Suddenly you don't have a job. Right. Um, over the time that you're unemployed, you, you try to get clients. You try to do what everybody does. You try to get by. You try to get new jobs. You try to approach headhunters. It doesn't work. Six months later, all of a sudden your income stops and suddenly you have to go to, in this case, me and say, I'm not going to have the rent on the first. That I know for you felt really bad because the one thing that you were always really good about was it was always there on the first no matter what. Yeah, that, that's one thing that, that I think my, my parents programmed in me from an early age is the rent is always got to be paid on the first on time before anything else and that's that's how I live my life you know right. no matter how how hard things get right. the rent the roof over your head is the most important thing and then one day you, you eat later have. yeah and then and then one day you just don't have it yes you know and there's nothing to do and I mean 
I don't want to do this for the sake of television, but I think a lot of people can relate to when you went to unemployment and you found out the woman hadn't filed the proper paperwork and that a check may not be forthcoming. You, you, all of a sudden, you just didn't know. And your whole financial future, you just all of a sudden, just you did not know what was going to happen. And you said you just sat there in the car, you know, sort of like, what the hell do I do now? Yeah. I think so many Americans out there watching this can relate to that moment, that feeling. I became numb for, I think, the next half hour. Yeah. Well, until I got a join in you, and, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I, li I was literally paralyzed for at least 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah I was thinking, no, it sounded... I was going over it through my head. What the hell am I going to do? Right. You know, it's already past the first. I had not paid the rent. And not to mention my car payment is due as well. I mentioned Michael Barber only because Michael Barber is a landowner. And I, and I said to him, you know, you're a nice person. Because I know him to be. Maybe some people think he's an a-hole, but other people, you know, people think I'm an a-hole, whatever, you know. Uh, to me, he's always been a great guy. And I said, I know that you don't want to make people homeless. That's not, that's not on your agenda. Neither do I. But at the same time, I can't carry this house on myself. I just, I can't. And he can't carry his apartment complexes on his own. He doesn't have the, the, the float, the funds. And so there comes a point where you have to make really hard decisions. And I don't think people realize that it's, it's as hard for the landlord or for the, the, the roommate as it is the person going through it. Because unless you're really a mean person, you know you can understand what plight they're in and you don't want to do anything to make them any, to harm them. You want to help them. But then what can you do? You, same story, right? You lost your job. Got laid off, yep. And then the six months of unemployment, you know, does its thing. Yeah, I got, uh, got laid off in October, finally got uh, the insurance. The first, I think, ins insurance check was end of November. And, by, and uh, it's a remarkably ridiculous amount. All right. I, mean, I went yeah. from 100 grand a year at KGO to 20 or 18,000 or 18, yeah, 18,005 for a whole year on unemployment. That's hard to swallow. Yeah, they, they expected me to survive on minus $90,000. Yeah, and, it, and it, one of the things is they, you know, they have uh, where you can take taxes out. Yeah. But you need that $90. You're already making nothing. You need that $90. So you're now you're kind of looking at the six months ahead, like... And you have a tax liability. Yep. Yeah. And so that's one thing that's going on through this whole thing. But, yeah, so I... I just like Stephen, I had... Uh, uh, it ended in May, right before his, uh, apparently. And do you have a family out here, or...? Colorado. So, so Colorado. So you're out here, this is it. I'd have been so grateful if my friends who were taking me out and spending 200 bucks on lunch would have just given me $50. Before you take someone out, if you think you're doing them a favor because they might have cash problems, ask them first if they would rather have the money. It may seem awkward at first. They'll be really grateful afterwards. That's a great idea. Did, right? No, really. Isn't that some, someone came to pick you up and said, let's go to lunch. Wouldn't you just say, just give me the $20? I, yeah, I, I have turned down pe people just to say that, Oh, I'm busy that day. But or, you really didn't have the money. But I really wasn't. My Dan Zamora, Dan Zamora used to always come and take me to lunch. He goes, don't worry, I'm paying. I'll never forget when I finally got back on my feet where I could say, I'm paying. It felt so good. It felt so good. Thank you, guys. I'm Y'all send subscriptions. That way I can pay for more, okay? Reallycorel.com.